evening is uh, August, no, it's September 21st, 2011. Our message this evening is called Son of a... And we're going to leave that part blank. We'll let you fill it in at the end. Um, son of a blank. I put some pictures on the screen here. I just wanted to show you as we just discussed missions for a moment. I wanted to tell you... Uh, this church has a board. Uh, we have actually several. We have a board of elders. We have a board of overseers that oversee the elders. Um, and the people that are pictured here uh, Interestingly enough, when Jennifer and I got married, uh, none of them were married. When Judah was born, None of them had children, and when I went into ministry, none of them were in ministry. But now, all of them are in ministry, all of them are married, and all of them have children. Uh, Wade Sutherland, who uh, you can see, his shirt says Warrior there, is uh, one of the pastors at a very large church in Austin. Uh, Eric Hill, who we're looking at the back of, uh, bottom left of the picture, uh, very large church in Dallas. Justin Johnson, who's looking right at the camera, uh, a church very similar to ours in Baton Rouge. And the reason that I wanted to show you that picture, and here's all of us together, is... What a difference that... How long have you been alive, Judah? 14 years now? What a difference 14 years makes. 14 years ago, none of these men were connected to another. They didn't have a spouse. None of these people had children, and none of them were in ministry. And today, they're all in ministry uh, and competent men to oversee ministries. Uh, these are their beautiful wives, which is a testament to uh, the Lord's grace. Is it not? Uh, this was all of us together. The littlest one down there on the end is Eric Hills. The largest one on the right is, is mine. And, and look what a difference 14 years makes. The kingdom is growing. It is, it is expanding and it's moving. And uh, this is uh, from the littlest all the way back, you know, uh, five. together and there were 26 people in one house. I'm trying to tell you that it is very difficult when you do something like buy a house, right? Uh, hey, it's only a 30-year commitment to know what your life is going to look like in 30 years. Uh, has anybody in here ever bought a two-door car only to find out later they were pregnant and uh, it's hard to get a baby seat in and out? I mean, I did that. Uh, I wanted the one off the showroom floor with the sunroof. Um, that was not all that practical when we had to put a couple baby seats in and out of it. It is difficult to project what your life may look like in a few years. But I can tell you 14 years ago, none of those people were alive. And none of the people in the previous pictures were in ministry. And none of them were married. But look what 14 years has done. Now let's think about 14 years in the span of a life. That's not a huge percentage of it. One eighth, one ninth, one seventh, something like that. 
You hang in there, trust in the promises of the Lord, and He is always faithful to His Word. I wanted to show you that because I want you to know these men. Uh, we're going to put them on our website along with some information about them. Uh, in addition to that, each one is going to take a quarter and preach a message in each quarter of the year so that you get to know them. And, uh, you know, Matthew and I, we work for the Lord, but these are men that we're accountable to. And there are, uh, we're forming some other legal entities within the church because we want this church to survive us. We want this church to be truly the Lord's and not the pet project of any man. If that does not uh, sound unique to you, if that doesn't in any way interest you, then praise God you have never run into normal church. Because normal churches have the name of a single pastor out front. And he is like the king of the kingdom. And if there's anybody that he's accountable to, it's because the church has been around for 300 years and he's simply a hirer. We are doing everything that we know how to do to set up the church in a vibrant, living way that serves generations to come honoring the Lord regardless of who is in it. And this is kind of our topic tonight. What did I say the title was? Son of A. And we'll have to see what comes after that. It turns me to Deuteronomy 3. Is it okay if I don't yell at y'all tonight? My throat's sore. Uh, now, that is not a guarantee that I'm not going to yell at you, but it is strongly uh, discouraging me from doing it. Are you in Deuteronomy 3? In Deuteronomy 3, let's, let's pick up together in the 26th verse. In the 26th verse, it says, But because of you, the Lord was angry with me and would not listen to me. Sounds like some serious whining, huh? That is enough, the Lord said. Uh, the Lord didn't like whining any more than this pastor does. Do not speak to me anymore about this matter. Did you realize there are things that God won't talk to you about? There are times that the Lord simply says, no, deal with it. Right? He's not our genie. We don't get to tell him what to do. He tells us what to do. Now, by the way, this was the only man that the Bible has ever said was a friend of God who spoke face to face with him. And the Lord basically just said, shut up, we're not going to talk about that. Of course, when you're close with people, you can say almost anything, can't you? The pleasantries get to fly out the window and you get to the, the meat of the matter. Do not speak to me anymore about this matter. Go up to the top of Pisgah and look west and north, south and east. Look at the land with your own eyes since you are not going to cross this Jordan. Are you beginning to get the context of what Moses is discussing with the Lord? Moses showed up and he began to proclaim to Israel something. He said, hey, look, we, uh, we're leaving Egypt. <laughs> the, 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 the God of covenant, the God whose name is Yahweh, has told me to come. And look, he gave me these beautiful signs. And, and ten plagues fell upon Egypt so that we could leave Egypt. And where were they going? Promised land. But Moses was not going to get to go. Can you say bummer? What if you worked your whole life? What if the culmination of your life's work was suddenly out of your reach? I mean, you ran all 25 miles of the marathon to hand a baton to somebody to run the 26th mile. Could that be difficult for you? 
course it could. How could it not? You know, uh, there was a, a guy that Matthew and I played football with, and uh, for whatever reason, other people carried the ball 30 times in a game. This guy carried the ball three times in a game. And it was, uh, it, it was the, the, the one play that nobody should expect. Because we, we ran the same play to the right, the same play to the left, and we alternated that per four quarters. And there was one other play in our hat, and it, it was basically a counter. It was meant to look like that, and we handed him the ball. And he usually scored. And he usually scored because it was, it was rare that we ran that play. It was not expected. And uh, it didn't feel good. It didn't feel good to do all of the work and watch him walk into the end zone. And he didn't make it easy on us because he said things like, every time I touch the ball, I score. <laughs> yeah. Without any regard for why that was true. Can you say that Moses didn't have such an easy life? I mean... He, he spent 40 years being educated in Egypt to do what with that? Give it up. Uh, he spent 40 years in the desert being educated as a shepherd to do what with it? Yeah, give that up. So at 80, he gets to begin his third career. Yeah? Anybody out there uh, uh, needing to begin a career? How do you like to do it at 80? You know? So he's 80 years old. He's beginning a career, and now he has spent 40 years in his third career, and he's 120, and I mean, it is the time to, to ring the bell at the top of the mountain. And the Lord said, shut up. I don't want to talk to you about this anymore. You're not going in. Does that tell you something about the Lord? Is he cruel? Is he sadistic? Let's see what the Lord did tell him to do. Go up to the top of Pisgah, look to the west, the north, the south, the east. Look at the land with your own eyes since you are not going to cross this Jordan. But commission Joshua and encourage and strengthen him. For he will lead this people across and will cause them to inherit the land that you will see. As in see but not go to. It was enough for Moses to get to see the culmination of his life's work. But he was not going to get to actually be the one that performed it. Now, theologians do something really interesting with this. They forget all about the life of Moses. They forget all about Joshua, his people, and suddenly they simply become kind of mythical icons. And they say, well, Moses represented the law, and the law could never inherit the land, but Joshua's name's awful close to Jesus, and Jesus was going to take us in the land, so that's what this means. Well, maybe there's something to be said for all of those things. But you know what that does not deal with? That Moses was a 120-year-old man that since he was 40 had been doing what the Lord told him to do. And at the end of his life, it was not about him. Can you, can you just sympathize for a moment at how difficult that must have been? You know? Whatever the most difficult task you can think of that your life has, and, and let's just say it has nine parts in it, and you work and you work and you work and you do all nine parts, and then we get to the tenth, and I show up, and do only the tenth part, and then turn and look at everybody. Mm. Superstar. <laughs> How would that feel? The kingdom requires something of us. It requires a heart that works for the Lord and not for ourselves. Why did Moses lead the people out of Egypt? Who can tell me? Why? Because the Lord told him to. Was he doing it for them or for the Lord? 
For the Lord. Why did Moses lead them 40 years in the desert? For them or for the Lord? For the Lord. I recently sat with somebody in ministry who was disillusioned with the, the uh, leaders in the church. And I understand this. This happens from time to time. Uh, I hope to minimize it here, but it happens. The response to being disillusioned with the leaders was to back away from ministry. Right? Now, that's an understandable response. If we can't all play ball together, we might just not play ball, right? The problem with that is you were never doing it for the ministry leaders, were you? Supposed to be doing it for the Lord. And then you get to ask this question, if I don't do what the Lord calls me to do, who will, who will do it? I said, let me ask you something. Since you began to withdraw your hand from the plow, and they recoiled at that thought, right? Because we know we have... Uh, Christianese in us. We know when I say hand to the plow, this is not a good thing. When you began to withdraw your hand from the plow, was your life better or worse? Well, now that you mention it, it's been pretty, pretty ugly the last six months. Let us work for the Lord without thought of return, and it is the most fulfilling thing in the world. You have no expectation except that he's happy with you. You have no responsibility except to do what he said. Now let us go back and look. What did he tell Moses to do? I want you to strengthen, encourage, commission Joshua. The Lord is very careful to make sure that no man gets credit for his work. So what he tends to do is raise up one man and invest a great deal in him so that that man can transition everything that God had given him to another man. And then he carries it a little further. And then to another man. And he carries it a little further. Have you noticed that of all the superstars in the Bible, none of them obtained the goal? None of them. To which one did the kingdom come down and, and uh, receive them as a king and get established on the earth? That did not even happen in Jesus' ministry. How about that? But we're sure that the goal of ministry in America is to produce something that looks like a success and declares the man who did it a success. Well, by what standard is Moses a success? Probably not by any. He set out from Egypt to get to the promised land. Did he go in? No. Was he wildly received by the people in his day? No. So what could he at the end of his life say that he did? Whatever the Lord told him. And that would have to be enough. I'd like to talk to you tonight about commissioning, strengthening, and encouraging. And this being the most fulfilling life possible. Is that okay? Yes. Let's go to Exodus. Tell me when you're in Exodus 24. What does it mean to strengthen and encourage? Uh, sometimes to us, a word like encourage, I told you to go to Exodus 24, right? Yeah, sir. Yeah, okay. Uh, sometimes to us, a word like encourage is, oh, you're beautiful. You know, you just got good looking hair or what a nice shirt, right? And we call that encouragement. Dangerously close to flattery by the way. But in any case, that's what we tend to call encouragement. This is not necessarily biblical encouragement. The word encourage in Hebrew literally means to strengthen. Are you strengthened when somebody says they like your nails? Woo, Patricia, you got your hair did. You know, it looks good, girl. Does she walk away stronger as a human being from that? 
Now, she might feel better about herself for a moment, and there's nothing wrong with it, but biblical encouragement involves edification. It involves leaving them better than you found them. And I would like to show you two ways. Moses did that with Joshua, then bring you into the New Testament. Starting in verse um, 12. The Lord said to Moshe, Yahweh said to Moshe, Come up to me on the mountain and stay here, and I will give you the tablets of stone. With the law and the commandments I have written there for instruction. Then Moshe set out with Joshua, his aide. Does anybody notice anything there? Who did the Lord say come up on the mountain to? Did he mention Joshua at all? No. Normally this is preached as a bad thing. Abraham was called out of Ur of the Chaldees, but he took his nephew Lot with him, and Lot became kind of a problem. And God never said take Lot, and that's usually how you hear a message like that preached. But God's goal was never simply to make Moses great. God's goal was to invest something into Moses that Moses got a chance to transition to another man who would transition it to another man who would transition it to another man until the kingdom of God was in our midst. And that's supposed to be an unbroken line from the beginning of man to the end of man. So God calls Moses up on the mountain, but Moses takes somebody with him on the mountain. Right? Wouldn't Moses just be fine to say, I'm sorry, <laughs> I didn't hear your name called, J.J.? I mean, the Lord called me. That's not what he did. Now, what role did, did Joshua play there? Aid. It's interesting because the way that this happens is somehow in the American culture, this means serf. It means peasant. It means, uh, you know, you do it because I say so and do it now. This is not what aid is in Hebrew. This word is very similar to helpmate. In other words, if Moses is going to get up that mountain, it helps to have somebody go with him. And it doesn't just help Moses. Who else does it help? Joshua. It helps Joshua. Because Joshua is going to get to see how an older man of God who is called to things that are similar is handling things. This is how ministry works and why people are called two by two. By the way, if you wanted to train, come here, come here, Gabe, come here, Brandon. If you wanted to train, I don't know, let's see, what animal comes to mind? Oxen. <laughs> if you wanted to train oxen, you take an older oxen and a younger oxen, and you yoke them together. You know why? When the younger oxen doesn't want to walk, the older oxen doesn't give them a choice. Right? But there's something encouraging to the older oxen about having youth. Right by his side. This is, this is something that was always there. Did you know that, you can sit down, did you know that when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, he rode on a colt, the foal of a donkey? Who knew that? Did you know Luke says that the mother was there as well? The female donkey? They were tethered together, in fact. You know why you tethered the two donkeys together? So the younger could learn how to walk by watching the older. Right? In fact, Christianity is actually supposed to be tethered to Judaism. Judaism was supposed to be for us that steadying influence that was grounded in the Word. And when we divorce ourselves from the older covenant, when we remove it, we get all kind of weird, crazy things like, I don't know, prosperity, uh, the health, wealth, new age, uh, better you gospel. Those things were never found in Judaism. When you cut that tether, difficult things happen. Moses went out and accepted into his life 
someone that seemed to have absolutely no intrinsic value. I mean, never is anything at this point said about Joshua that is encouraging about his mountaineering skills. Nothing is said about his ability to hear from God at this point. Nothing is said about his ability to uh, watch God write on stone tablets. I don't know. There, there's nothing in his job description that indicates this. The one thing that he did do is he, he beat up on Amalekites. And, I mean, that is useful to have around. <laughs> Look at this. Let's go to 33. Exodus 33. One way that we begin to transition or transmit something of value is simply by including people in what you're doing, friends. Who, who in this church got here without knowing anyone in the church or being invited by anyone? Two people. Did y'all stumble in off the street? Is that what happened? Tell me. Uh, my wife passed by the old church. Uh-huh. Seeing the sign, we were looking for a church to invite. So that saw a sign. That is one person out of a church of, I guess we're creeping on 90 now. 100, something like that. One in a hundred simply stumbled in here. How did the rest of you get here? Somebody had to include you in what they were doing, didn't they? Somebody had to say, hey, this thing was pretty cool, or you have to see this, uh, this crazy preacher, or man, the worship is wonderful, or uh, I don't know what they told you, but somebody had to include you uh, for you to be here. What does it feel like to be excluded? Let's start there. What happens when you see everybody doing something you weren't invited? Yeah? See, when we include people, it starts the transmission of something. When you include people in your life, how about, you know, your kids? Have you ever seen your kids just light up doing something disgusting, like cleaning toilets or dishes or something? Because they get to do it with mom or dad, and that's cool. I mean, I remember when I begged to cut the grass, and then I found out what it was as it became my responsibility, and I hated it. <laughs> But as a kid, I wanted to do it. You know why I wanted to do it? I just wanted to be where Dad was. There is something to be said for simply including people in what God called you to do and sharing with them. And as that happens, a kind of transmission occurs. Are you in Exodus 33? Yeah. Let us pick up then in verse 7. Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all of the people rose and stood at the entrances to their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshipped, each at the entrance to his tent. The, Lord's, the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. Then Moses would return to the camp, but his young aide Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. It's funny, if that last line was there, you wouldn't even know he was in the tent, huh? Yeah. Anybody here got a little brother? Raise your hand if you have a little brother. Yeah. It's an amazing thing. You know, as a little boy, I followed my sister a lot of places. She didn't want me to follow her. Right? I saw things I wasn't supposed to see. Sometimes I went back and gave an unfavorable report, just like Joseph did. It's almost like once Moses included Joshua, Joshua saw something that he liked. 
Something that registered inside. And every time Moses turned around, he found out Joshua was following him. The Jewish concept for this is that you, you follow your rabbi so closely that whatever dust his feet kicks up, it's getting on you. And it's a euphemism for his manner of life, his way of living, his teaching is falling upon you. But look, Moses did such a good job that even when he was ready to leave the tent where God's presence was, who did not want to leave? This really is the goal of transitioning. What begins to happen is somebody else falls in love with what they have seen in you, see what you do, and even when your time comes to move on from it, they are furthering it. Was Moses really getting the raw end of the deal to see the kingdom of God before he walked in the promised land? No, he's not getting the raw end of the deal, is he? He moved on to something better, even if it felt like the raw end of the deal for a few moments, okay? But somebody had to continue what he was doing, and that was Joshua. Does that make sense to you? Well, when we think of leaders of nations, when we think of things like uh, Moshe and Hoshea, sounds funny to hear their Jewish names sometimes, huh? Moshe and Hoshea, that is Moses and Joshua. Moses' mom never said Moses, not in her whole life. Moshe and Hoshea. When we see them, we say, oh, well, of course, presidents have to have successors. Kings have to have somebody who follows them. And this is like that. And you miss a really important truth. Every man that God ever revealed something to, everyone who ever got special revelation, the revelation was never about them. It was about the people that they would pass it on to and bless. So it's not just about them. But while we talk about that, while we think about that, Let's name some famous duos. I will say the first name and you say the second name. Is that okay? Man. All right, two of you, that's okay with. What does that mean? The rest of you are a man? What is Allison, is it okay? Yeah. Okay. Batman. Sonny. Starsky. Tom. Romeo. Abbott. Jekyll. It's an amazing thing. We can do Herb. <laughs> anyway, we could do this all day, and some people's names are intrinsically linked, aren't they? Let me, let me do it this way, though. This is kind of awkward, huh, to say Hyde and Jekyll, Costello and Abbott, Juliet and Romeo. Hey, Juliet, Romeo, doesn't that feel backwards to you? Hey, I'd like to talk to you about Jerry and Tom. It, it somehow doesn't conjure up the same image, does it? Hey, dude, I saw the coolest show. It was called Hutch and Starsky. It doesn't work. I, I, now, one that did was Cher and Sonny. But anyway, we'll stop there. Uh, that's commentary on a different time in American history. I would like to talk to you about Acts 4. Turn there before I get in trouble. Now, I've been using the term transition, right? It's a funny thing when you think about transition because transition, when you look at it in something like a dictionary, has one of those definitions that, I don't know, it sounds like you're in science class. It says something like moving from one state, style, or place to another. That kind of leaves you with the impression, though, that you move from here to there so you can't be there anymore, doesn't it? Yeah, if I transition from here to there, I'm not there anymore. Maybe this is why people don't like the idea of transitioning. If I give Matthew everything that I have, I will have nothing. 
But the kingdom is not that way. Was Moses left with nothing? In fact, Moses' name is pretty, pretty revered, isn't it? But if Moses had refused to do what God said, if he went and killed Joshua and said, no way, would Moses have the reverence that he has today? Probably not. See, we think of it as the death of something to give life to someone else, but the reality is when we give our life away, what does Jesus say we find? Life. So it's a bit of a paradox for us. Transitioning in the kingdom is not like it is in math. To move something from here to there does not leave here without. It just kind of multiplies. You know, in the kingdom, we have fuzzy math anyway. Five loaves and two fishes is how many basketfuls? Twelve. I mean, that's crazy, isn't it? Who does math like that? The Father, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, right? right. Father, Jesus, Holy Spirit. But the Bible adds that up as one. So if he says that you can transition without losing anything, then we're just going to have to accept that. I'd like to show you something. Transition is one other thing, by the way. Uh, I, I guarantee you, Irma knows all about it. Anybody know what else transition is? It's a stage of pregnancy. It's when the baby is moving from one stage to another, right? And it is necessary for life. If the baby doesn't transition, you get a stillbirth. I'll tell you a secret. Same thing happens in ministry. If a ministry cannot transition what God has invested in it to other people, you get a stillbirth. Uh, did y'all go to Acts 4? Yeah. Yes. I didn't. <laughs> it's one of the few times I preached and I would not do what I told you to do. I'm kidding. I'm getting there. I'm repenting right now. Making up for it. Here comes Acts 4, starting in verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. I don't know whether you've been around human beings as long as I have, but that's as big a miracle as anybody ever being raised from the dead. Uh, if you put 10 kids in the room with 20 scoops of ice cream, one child will try to get all 20. I mean, that is human nature, right? Be sick, can't eat anymore, but still not want you to have one. That's sin. But when these people got filled with the Holy Ghost, when their life's directives began to change, they began to share everything. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. Skip down to verse 36. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold the field he owned and bought, brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, it's an interesting thing. Levites, uh, they don't normally have fields that they can sell. They have no inheritance in Israel. How is a Levite supported? By the other tribes. Tithes, offerings, those kind of things. So if he had a field, it was either because he saved tithes and offerings and he saved up his money and he bought a field, or maybe he married into it, you know? I mean, that works for some of our presidential candidates. They marry into the money. But whatever he did, Whatever he had at his disposal, and this was likely to be his only possession, he sold, and he brought it and put it at the feet of the apostles. Now relax, I'm not trying to get your property out of you, but I am talking about an attitude. Have you ever heard of Joseph the Levite? I mean, 
This is not a name when you're playing Bible trivia you hear a lot. You don't hear Sonny and Cher like Joseph the Levite and, I don't know, Paul. You don't hear that, do you? He was renamed. He was given a name that more adequately suited his function. In other words, in the kingdom we have the right to say, Whiner! <laughs> Dude, why are you calling me a whiner? Well, it's what you do. <laughs> I'm sorry, if you were a stonemason, I'd call you a stonemason, but you're a whiner. No, I'm kidding. We do not have the right to do that. We're supposed to call things as they should be. We're supposed to encourage. Barnabas was called the son of encouragement. Barnaba, bar means son, naba means encouragement, but encouragement means strengthening, edifying, establishing. There was something about him that left people stronger, more encouraged, and more established whenever he was around them. This is exactly what God told Moses to do with Joshua. Commission him, strengthen him, and encourage him because he's going to finish something that you started. Well, Barnabas had a unique pension for this. So what happens is he gets called the son of the guy. He, he is the, the birthing agent for encouragement, establishing, and strengthening. Why could that be so important? Do men of God just fall out of the sky in some perfected state? No. Who, name a good Bible teacher. Somebody spit one out. Wigglesworth. Did Wigglesworth start off saved? No. No. Well, that begs the question then, who helped Wigglesworth get where he was? Now, we're all spiritual, so we say, oh, well, it was the Lord. But when the Lord wants to do something on the earth, how does he do it? He does it through men. Somebody had to help Smith Wigglesworth or anyone else. Charlie and I were talking today in the town that I come from, or at least spent way too much time in. Uh, a man named A.E. Eccles brought the gospel there on horseback and he taught the spirit-filled message and almost every spirit-filled work there can be traced to his obedience. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Did he help establish things? Did he help encourage or strengthen things? Well, of course, he birthed life everywhere he went. And you know what? You probably never knew his name, but you've heard names like Larry Stockstill, Jimmy Swadford, You've heard those kind of names, haven't you? The spirit-filled message wouldn't have been in that state, in that area, if somebody didn't bring it. <laughs> so what we find then is that there are men who are called to transition, and actually all men are, in a way that maybe nobody knows their name. Do you remember our duo we were talking about earlier? Batman, Robin, Sonny, Cher, Starsky, Hutch. When we say the name Paul, who goes with it? Barnabas or Silas. You got it absolutely right. But it would feel strange to say Barnabas and Paul, wouldn't it? This is because for us there's Batman and there's Robin. There is the leader and then the funky sidekick, right? He doesn't have his cool utility belt. He's not. He has to wear kind of a strange leotard, right? <laughs> for us, when we think of Moses and Joshua the aide, the aide is, you know, he's running around like a peasant. How can I help you? But this is not the way the kingdom life is. The way that the kingdom works is your job is to raise up equals who hopefully 
surpass you. So I'd like to show you something. Let's go ahead and turn to Acts 9. Would that be okay? Good, because we'll never finish if we don't actually go here. And we've got a transition, that's right. Acts 9, here comes verse 17. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, isn't it interesting he didn't say, Most revered Saint Apostle Paul. He didn't do that, did he? Because Paul, like every other person, started out just as a brother. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me to you so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. Can you preach the moment you get born again? Amen. Well, of course. Of course, you've got something to say. What do you have to say? What the Lord's done for you. But i got to tell you, are you ready to lead men the day that you get born again? But this is the Apostle Paul here. Everywhere Paul goes for the next few years, all he does is incite riots and people want to kill him. There's no planting of churches. There's no making of disciples. There is only people that are angry enough to kill him. Yeah, I started preaching the day I got born again, too. I got arrested in a mall. <laughs> yeah, uh, today we're planting churches. But how do you get from the guy who's being arrested in a mall to the guy who's planting churches? An interesting thing. Let us keep reading here. How about verse uh, 23? After many days had gone by, the Jews conspired to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But the followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples. I would like you to think about that for a minute. Some of our maybe newest folks here. We'll pick on Gabby for a minute just because she loves me and I can do that. What if Gabby showed up here, right? And uh, she's like, hey. You right. Hey, she says, I would like to join. Well, you can try. <laughs> what do you mean he tried to join the disciples? They didn't let him. They wouldn't include him. Remember how Moses included Joshua? They weren't willing to include him. And you got a Bible in front of you. Why weren't they willing to include him? They're scared. And why were they scared? Well, this guy's done bad things, right? I, I know none of them had ever done bad things. But they knew about Paul's bad things. And they were scared. And they didn't want to include him. So who, who, uh, who does include him? When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples. But they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him. And brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul was on his journey and had seen the Lord. And the Lord had spoken to him. Somebody had to go, go and speak for him. Say, hey, he should be included. He took him, he brought him, and he spoke for him. 
You ever been in a situation where nobody would speak up for you? I have. Where maybe you said what everybody was thinking, but nobody else had the courage to stand with you for a moment? That's well, a lonely feeling, isn't it? Doesn't it feel great when one other person moves from Louisiana to Texas to help you in your work? Doesn't it? I know it did for me. The Apostle Paul never could have been the Apostle Paul if everywhere he went they wanted to kill him and would exclude him. Somebody had to say, hey, I'll include you. I'll stand for you. I will vouch for you. By the way, you see Paul doing this for people later. You remember the line in the scripture that says, Epaphras is always wrestling for you. I vouch for him that he works hard on your behalf. Sometimes you just need somebody else to stand with you and advocate for you. And I know, we're all spiritual people, right? Jesus is our advocate. The Holy Ghost is our advocate. But isn't it good to have somebody with a little skin on them sometimes? Who is supposed to be Jesus' hands and feet? So if you want to advocate for somebody, who is going to? If you want to include them, who is going to? Oh, well, Jesus will do it. Yes, but he would do it through you. Ministries have short lifespans. And they have short lifespans because their lives are all about them. We need our lives to be all about someone else. We need to learn to include people, to take them, to bring them, to speak for them. How many of you have ever had the thought, no offense to anybody who feels new, y'all were all new here at some point. How many of you have ever had the thought, let's just say when Cody came in? It's kind of weird. Well, of course, what were you when you got here? Yeah. Do you know we got a phone call from somebody one time, Cody was sitting, he'd taken a Nazarite vow, so he looked like Wolfman Jack. And he's sitting outside of our house, we got a phone call from a scared mother who doesn't go to our church, praise God, yet, but we'll get to her eventually. There's a strange man sitting outside your house. I said, yeah, that's my son. <laughs> Don't you feel great now? Long pause. Okay, well, I'll let you go. Yeah, you do that. That was my son, lady. Uh, you need somebody to include you sometimes. Somebody who can look past whatever everybody thinks about you today and sees what you can be tomorrow. I mean, Brandon looked like a poodle when we found him. <laughs> Turn with me to Acts 11. By the way, at the end of Acts 9, Saul gets on a ship because, you guessed it, they want to kill him again. And he goes to Tarsus. Okay, so now in Acts 11, we have something else. Look at, um, how about 11, 19? Now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and... <coughs> I'm sorry, and Cyrene went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of the people believed and turned to the Lord. Now news of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnaba to Antioch. When he arrived and saw evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of the people were brought to the Lord. 
Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, does that say Saul and Barnabas or Barnabas and Saul? Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught a great number of people. How about the 30th verse there? This they did, sending their gift to the elders through Saul and Barnabas, or Barnabas and Saul? What I would like you to understand is that there was some long hiatus, depending on how you count this, maybe as long as 14 years that went by between Saul, the brand new Christian that nobody could trust, and only Barnabas vouching for him, and then him showing up on the scene because he was invited into another man's work, included in another man's work, and he really gets to develop his skills. What if nobody included him? Where would we be? You would have a much smaller New Testament. The Gideon size could, you know, fit in your cell phone. If the Apostle Paul had not been included in the work at Antioch, by the way, he needed somebody to vouch for him, somebody to include him. And then what was Paul's ministry really about if you get down to it? Gentiles. Somebody needs to vouch for them. Somebody needs to include them. So we call Paul the apostle to the Gentiles, but uh, really he was Robin to somebody else's Batman, wasn't he? At least that's how he started. But men of God never leave things that way. You know, if you go work for a journeyman in the plant, he might want you to be his helper always, but the goal is that you become a journeyman yourself. That's the goal. The goal is never that you stay at the bottom rung of the ladder. That would be some kind of unholy Amway plan. What God does is he uses one man who he might call, I don't know, a master craftsman or trademan to raise up somebody else to become his peer and hopefully surpass him. You know, it's funny, five times the phrase Barnabas and Saul appears in the book of Acts. It's Acts 11.26, 11.30, 12.25, 13.2, 13.7. Five times. You know how many times the phrase Paul, or rather Saul and Barnabas appears? By the time we were in the 12th chapter, and it's showing up, let's just say around verse 25, what does it say? When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. Did you hear whose mission it was? Barnabas and Saul's. By the time we get to 13.2, what are we doing? When they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me. Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So how then do we end up in history with an idea of Paul and Barnabas? Well, I'll tell you how. Barnabas worked to allow Paul to grow. He vouched for him. He included him. He uh, brought him to the work that he had been entrusted, even though it was never mentioned. And then they began to work together as peers. And in this 13th chapter... Paul begins to show a little promise. What happens when a Jewish sorcerer named Elimus shows up? Is it Barnabas that handles it? No, it's Paul. Turn with me to the 14th chapter. By the time we reach the 14th chapter in the 12th verse, we have Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the 
Now, let's just be honest. If you were Greek, would you rather be Zeus or Hermes? Zeus, the king of the gods, or Hermes, the messenger? <laughs> You'd rather be Zeus. But this does mark kind of a turning point because Paul is no longer just the guy who has been included in somebody's work. This was their work. They were sent out in together and they're settling into their roles. Barnabas had been in the faith longer and was established and maybe even a little less volatile, but Paul was the chief speaker. What if Barnabas had said, hey man, wait a minute, I'm the one in charge. I'm the one that included. I should preach more than you. It should be me. Well, we'd have a real problem, wouldn't we? See, transitioning to other people means that you include people when they're not your equal and you act as if they are. And the hope is that they rise to that level because you're nourishing them, strengthening, establishing them, son of encouragement, and then they surpass you, at least in some area, because God has gifted them differently than you. Is Paul gifted differently than Barnabas? Of course. Of course he is. Does that make Barnabas inferior? No. There would be no Paul had there not been a Barnabas. By the time we get to Acts 15, something else has happened. In 15, starting around verse 36, it says, Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us go back to visit the brothers in all of the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Do you notice that Paul never says where I preach the word of the Lord? Even though he was the chief speaker because he never would have went if it wasn't for Barnabas. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them, but Paul did not think it wise to take him because he has deserted them, because he deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. People have the question, well, who was right? <laughs> Let me tell you, neither and both. <laughs> you like that kind of answer? Neither were right and both were right because in the end, they ended up taking what had been transitioned to them and doing it again. John Mark, a failure. He turned back on a missionary journey. How does he finish his life when Barnabas is through with him? The writer of the Gospel of Mark. Silas, prior to this, not mentioned in any prominent way in the Gospel. But how do you think of Silas when you hear him? The guy who stood next to Paul and sang with him in prison when they were catching a beating from a Roman lictor. The guy who got a chance to see an earthquake that opened prison doors, set the captives free. The guy that was on the first missionary trip to Macedonia and saw the first person saved, a hero in the faith. But none of that happens if men of God are selfish. None of it happens if the people of God don't want to invest in other people. I'd like to tell you that ultimately, the way that the kingdom works is in transitional leadership. This means that whatever Mike has learned in his life, he transitions into, let's just say, Nolan. Whatever Mike has from the Lord, he includes Nolan in. And maybe eventually Nolan is somewhere else like Arkansas. And he is just bringing down the house for God. And nobody knows Mike's name. But Mike can stand back and smile. Because he knows that he had something to do with that. 
And maybe nobody knows who poured into Mike. But there's somebody else smiling somewhere. Who's getting the glory all of the time for this? It's not Nolan Mike or whoever poured into Mike. It's Jesus. That's how the kingdom works, friends. That's also why you have to be called two by two. The kingdom is relational. It's also why the people on your left and right need you. It's why we have to be a community. And it cannot simply be a paid orator. It doesn't work. It dies when the great orator dies. The kingdom is something that is growing and moving and flexing. It's alive and vibrant. And our job is to find our place in it and help every other person, even if it means they step on you to get where God's called them to go, to do it. Remember, Moses probably felt a little stepped on. But where would we be without Joshua? See, this is worth thinking about. They had such a problem with this in Jesus' hometown that they would not trust him enough for him to do miracles. I said, isn't this, isn't this the carpenter? This is Mary's son. We know his brothers and his sisters. Nothing good can come from something so familiar. But what they didn't know is what the father had poured into him, what he has, had observed. And we do the same thing. You know, you never expect this little girl to grow up and shake the whole world. But she might. And it's your job to help her do it. And if you don't, it says more about you than her. Doesn't it? I'd like us to have a radical response to the gospel. I want to take the gospel to every corner of this world. I want to see amazing things done for the Lord, but I don't want to do them. You know? I personally believe that my role in this thing is to excite people about the Lord. That Matthew's role in this thing is to lead people into the presence of God. That your role in this thing, you have yet to discover that the role of apostles, prophets, teachers, pastors, and evangelists is to prepare you for your work of service. That's our role. And if we do it well, then your role surpasses ours. That's how it's supposed to be. There should never be a generation that does less than the one before. Let me prove it to you. And I have a whole lot of time, so I'll give you just one scripture and you have to trust me. Didn't Jesus say you would do even greater things than him? Well, if the generation after Jesus is supposed to surpass Jesus, then I'm going to say that it's supposed to have kept going that way. Yeah. That means nobody in here, as a generation, collectively, as a community, should do less than Jesus did. What a responsibility, huh? Can you say I'm going to need some help? It's okay. You can say I'm going to need some help. Go ahead, raise your hand. Say I need some help. Okay. Help each other. Help each other. Get together. Read the Word. Go study together. Go hang out together. Include each other in your lives. And if there's somebody that you're like, ah, I don't know. I think about them a lot, but we just, you know, we don't click. Make it click. The Holy Ghost is there. Make it work. You have all things in common in Christ. Make it work. The dying world is waiting on us. Yeah? Transitional leadership. If we do our job well, you will be somewhere telling of the glories of God. Nobody will ever know our names, and that's absolutely the way that it should be. If you'll only serve God as long as you get a copyright on it, you're not very useful to Him. Amen? Amen. Y'all stand up this prayer.
I was going to preach about the 23 apostles named in the scripture, but um, we ran out of time, so maybe some other time. It weren't just 12. Remember Judas defected, Matthias replaced him. Then, of course, Barnabas and Paul, they're called apostles. And Andronicus and Junus are called apostles. And then James, the Lord's brother, who was not one of the originals, James, he's, he's called an apostle. And the list keeps going and going and going because these men always transitioned what they were given. They always raised up others. So it never died out. The cessationists that say the apostolic age died out when the last apostle died, they would be right if the last apostle had died. But they didn't. Because they weren't some special class of people. They were just people who hung around other people and had a similar calling and learned to do it. Yeah. Like Joshua and Moses. Let's pray.